warm uh, greetings to all our friends and brethren and family around the world, and uh, particularly those who are online as well. We're thankful for God's blessing for his work. I hope that all of you listen to Mr. Wesson's weekly video update on our church website, uh, lcg.org. He shared the good news uh, in his last uh, video presentation Thursday, and we saw it yesterday, uh, that uh, the work, the telecast has received more than 6,000 responses for three weeks in a row. Uh, that was for his program on uh, 2021 in Bible prophecy, and then just what is the day of the Lord, and Mr. Smith's a very powerful program, uh, The End of America. How many people of you have seen Mr. West Smith's program, uh, The End of America? Let's see your hands. Okay, that looks like about 35%, so the other 65% uh, really need to see it. This is one of the most powerful programs I think we've had. I think about Isaiah 58 where he says, Cry aloud and spare not and show my people their sins. And uh, it most likely did get us uh, uh, removed from uh, Newsmax, uh, Newsmax uh, uh, Network. Uh, because of the powerful witness that it was. And it was like blowing the trumpet. And I think this is one of the last trumpet blo- uh, blasts that you will hear. If you haven't seen that, you need to see it, all of you. Uh, you need to wake up to the end times in which we're living. So be sure that you watch that uh, program if you haven't seen that. But that's a good news that we had 6,000 responses three weeks in a row. And uh, then Mr. Wesson also mentioned that uh, we've had 3,000 average responses, that is, new ads, new subscribers to Tomorrow's World magazine, uh, and the average every week. So that means in a year's time, if that average kept up, we have 150,000 uh, new subscribers to Tomorrow's World magazine. And uh, he's setting a goal, uh, generally speaking, I guess, of a million uh, subscriptions, uh, to because the magazine is so powerful. Now we have ten issues uh, per year. So be praying for the circulation of Tomorrow's Web magazine, Tomorrow's World magazine, that it gets around to uh, many more people. It's a wonderful, uh, powerful witness and is turning many to righteousness. But on the other hand, some of our brethren are experiencing trials in life. In California and other places, they have full lockdown. And some of our brethren are, even though they get uh, live, live streaming at their home, some of them are getting discouraged. And what can you do when you're facing trials? What strategies do you take? What do you normally do? Well, we know in Hebrews 7.25 it says that we have a great high priest who ever lives to make intercession for us. And then, of course, it tells us in Hebrews 13, verse 5, uh, Jesus said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And then in Matthew 28 and uh, verse 20, he said, I will be with you to the end of the age. And I claim those promises from time to time when I feel a little down, uh, that Christ says, I will never leave you. I'm with you always. So claim those promises. But turn to Hebrews, the fourth chapter, uh, Hebrews 4. <clears throat> And uh, we have verse 14, Hebrews 4 and verse 14. 
Here we have the wonderful continuation of the theme of Christ being our, our great high priest. Hebrews 4 and verse 14. Seeing that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. He was human. He experienced pain. He experienced persecution. But he said in verse 16, Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. That we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Uh, what's your time of need? I, I think my need is a, always a time of need. <clears throat> and God tells us to come boldly before that throne of grace. So, today I'd like to talk to you a little more about that throne of grace and explore the power and revelation of God's gift of grace, what grace is, and how it applies to us and the true grace that he reveals through his Bible. The title of the sermon today is God's Throne of Grace. So where is God's throne? I won't turn there, but I'll just read a couple of scriptures. Where is God's throne? Psalm 111, verse 4. The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold, his eyelids test the Son of Men. The Lord's throne is in heaven. Psalm 103 and verse 19. The Lord has established his throne in heaven, and his kingdom rules over all. Yes, God rules supreme. So now, do you know where in the Bible to find a description of God's heavenly throne room? Where in the Bible do you find a description of God's throne room? Well, I think most of you should know it's Revelation, the fourth chapter. And here you see the love of God that he is willing to share with us of description of his very throne room. Revelation, the fourth chapter. The Apostle John is invited to go up to heaven and envision, perhaps. He says in verse four, chapter four, verse one, after these things I looked and behold a door standing Open in heaven, and the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking to me, Come up here, and I will show you these things which must take place after this. Now, it may have been a vision. We don't know whether he really bodily went up there or not. Immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. And he who sat on it was like jasper and a sardius stone in appearance. There was a rainbow about the throne. In appearance like an emerald. I know one time I was uh, hiking with uh, Dr. Meredith there in Penasquitas there in California, and we had a double rainbow, and it was just so glorious. Oh, think about God's throne. He's sharing with you his throne room and a description of it. Verse 4, around the throne were 24 thrones, and on the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting clothed in white robes, 
and they had crowns of gold on their heads. These are created beings. And I didn't really think about it until recently. I think, well, talking around the throne, I always thought them they would be for, before the throne, but apparently they're circling all the way around the throne. Verse 5, and from the throne proceeded lightnings, thunderings, and voices. Seven lamps of fire were burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. So this gives a glorious picture of the throne of God. Verse 6, before the throne there was a sea of glass, like crystal. And in the midst of the throne and around the throne, four living creatures full of eyes in front and back. God has created spirit beings, uh, different characteristics, different angelic beings. The first living creature was like a lion, the second like a calf, the third with the face of a man, the fourth a living creature was like a flying lion. And the four living creatures, each having six wings, were full of eyes around and within. And they do not rest day or night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. So really, God is going to come to this earth. Whenever the living creatures gave glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever and cast their thrones before him, saying, You are worthy, Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. And, of course, that particular uh, refrain, you are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power is on the Handel's Messiah, the uh, beautiful oratorio that uh, some of you have gone to uh, Uptown Charlotte at the uh, Charlotte Symphony and, and heard the Messiah. <coughs> so God gives us that vision, and, and there is Jesus Christ there at the right hand of God the Father, and that's the where we go. When we go to the throne of grace, come boldly to that throne of grace, we have the privilege, spiritually speaking, of entering in right to that very headquarters, the throne of the universe, where Jesus Christ and God the Father are seated. So, we mentioned the sea of glass. Let's turn to Revelation 15 and verse 2. Just to review that as God gives us the picture of that throne with a sea of glass, he even mentions that those overcomers and the saints are going to stand on that very sea of glass. Those who are the overcomers, Revelation 15 and verse 2. And I saw something like a sea of glass. This is the sea of glass in heaven. Mingle with fire are those who have had the victory over the beast, over his image, over his mark, and over the number of his name, standing on the sea of glass. We all have to be overcomers. And we rehearsed that lesson during the days of unleavened bread. Having harps of God. I guess God is all <laughs> going to give us all the ability to play harps. They sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are your works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the saints. Where are the saints? He's the King of the saints. 
Who shall not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy, for all nations shall come and worship before you, for your judgments have been manifested. Where will the wedding of Christ and the church take place? You have Matthew 25, you have a couple other parables of the wedding. Revelation 19 and verse 7. Revelation 19 verse 7. Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his wife has made herself ready. Yes, we are being prepared as the very bride of Christ. And to her was granted to be arrayed with fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Then he said to me, write, blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true sayings of God. So we have been invited to the very throne of God at the wedding that takes place with Christ before God the Father. And it be on the sea of glass. So just realize that when you're reading Revelation, the fourth chapter, the description of that throne, we eventually, the overcomers, will see God the Father face to face. And of course, even David's psalm said, Lord, I will seek your face. And, and of course, even Moses got to see the eternal face to face back in the tabernacle time. So God gives us that invitation. We look forward to the great wedding on the sea of glass and being before God the Father. Now you realize that what that throne pictures and what it signifies. It signifies the supreme sovereignty and authority and headquarters of God Almighty and Jesus Christ. And Jesus said in Matthew 28, verse 18, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. The King James Version says, All power is given to me in heaven and on earth. So when you see our telecast on the... uh, Galaxies, two million galaxies going out into space, some of them going out into space at a hundred million million miles an hour, which seems impossible, but uh, that's scientifically a a fact. You realize he has that authority. Turn to Hebrews, the 11th chapter. All the power in the universe is centered at that throne. Hebrews. Hebrews, the first chapter. Hebrews 1 talks about our Savior. Hebrews 1, verse 1. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in times past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So Jesus Christ is at the right hand of God the Father, and he says that all things, that he upholds all things. The term all things here in verse 3 is, in the Greek, is ta panta, 
literally the all. And the uh, lexicons say this means everything that is seen and unseen. So your Savior has the power and sustains the universe. In fact, uh, that's one of the translations uh, has it that he sustains the universe. And uh, the RSV says upholding the universe. So your Savior is sustaining all the universe, everything that you can see and you don't see. And what a glorious and powerful universe it is. So we see that Jesus Christ has all power in the universe and that the throne of God is the control center of the whole universe. And that is where all authority and power comes from, that God does rule supreme. But it's also a throne of mercy. It's also a throne of God's glorious love. And remember that God is for you. We're talking about people who may be discouraged. May turn to Romans the 8th chapter. Romans 8, one of your favorite verses, I hope. One of my, as I say, one of maybe a hundred of my uh, favorite verses. Romans 8. Romans 8 and verse 31. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? You draw near to God and he will draw near to you, it tells us in James, the fourth chapter. I hope you're doing that and claiming that promise. I, I, I tell you, Father, I'm drawing near to you. You promise to draw near to me. Who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? And again, the term all things is tapanta, meaning the all, meaning the universe. So our Father in heaven invites us to come in prayer to his loving, magnificent throne of grace. I hope we appreciate the power, the mercy, the grace that he's willing to give to us personally. And he says, come boldly before that throne of grace in the name of our great high priest and who is at the right hand, Christ Jesus our Lord. So God's heavenly throne of grace is the control center of the universe And God tells us to come boldly before that throne that we may obtain mercy and grace to help in time of need. But what is the world's concept of grace? Turn to Jude, Jude verse 4. The world embraces a counterfeit grace. So Jude wrote in verse 4. For certain men have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were marked out for this condemnation, ungodly men who turn the grace of our God into lewdness and deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. Who turn the grace of God into lewdness, or as the King James Version has it, turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness, which is lustful acts and thoughts. On the January 2021 
Tomorrow's World magazine, we have an article, Grace, Freedom to Sin, question mark. I'll quote from that. Grace is a wonderful gift from God, but it is much misunderstood. How can we be sure that you are making the most of all God's grace in your life? So I hope that you read that article, uh, Grace, Freedom to Sin. And basically that's what the, the world is doing. And it has a counterfeit grace which says you can do anything you want. Uh, even those things we heard about the sermonette. And those are some religious people, of course, who put their stamp of approval on those abominations. And as Mr. Dawson said, yes, uh, we need to cry and sigh for those abominations, it tells us in Ezekiel 9 and verse 4. We just sigh and cry for those abominations that are being committed and being approved of uh, by our governments and by state governments and other legislation around the country. Just abominable. But what does it, what is the basic conflict in religion? It's based on Romans 6 verse 14. So you want to turn to Romans 6 and verse 14 for the basic misinterpretation and false application by Protestants and others of grace. Romans 6 verse 14. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you not under the law, but under grace. And then take that under context in saying, well, since uh, we're not under the law, we don't need to keep the law. And that's the false teaching, the, the heresy that goes along with uh, that counterfeit grace. Well, what is it saying here? What is the proper explanation? Well, the whole context says here in verse 12, Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey it to its lust. So the context is sin. And do not present your members, verse 13, as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, which we heard about in the sermonette. But present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under the law, but under grace. Well, what is sin? He tells us at the end of the chapter, uh, verse 23, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's verse 23. But verse 15, What then? Shall we transgress God's law? Shall we sin because we are not under the law but under grace? Certainly not. So we are not under the law, which means we are not under the claim of the law because we have become slaves of righteousness and we are free from sin. And, of course, uh, the Apostle Paul uh, mentioned the word grace here in verse uh, 20, verse 21, uh, verse Chapter 6, verse 1. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin? Shall we continue to transgress the Ten Commandments and God's law that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin shall 
live any long, long, longer in it. So as he tells in verse 18 that he has set us free from sin and we've become slaves of righteousness. So the world's concept of grace is totally in error. And uh, if you let sin reign in, your mar- reign in your mortal body, then you are under the law. You're under the penalty of the law if you let sin reign in your mortal body. So sin has power if you're under the law because it has an external claim on you. But under the old covenant, the law was not written on the hearts and minds of the Israelites. And that's why we have a new covenant, which means God writes his laws on our hearts and on our minds. The NIV study Bible explains Romans 6.14 this way, quote, Paul conceived of sin as a power that enslaves and so personified it. What is the meaning of not under the law? The meaning is not that the Christian has been freed from all moral authority. I'll repeat that. The meaning of Romans 6.14 is not that Christians have been freed from all moral authority. He has, however, been freed from a law in the manner of which God's people were under the law in the Old Testament era. Law provides no enablement to resist the power of sin. It only condemns the sinner, but grace enables. So God tells us then that we are obedient to him. Let's see, we've got Romans 6 and uh, verse 15. Romans 6 and verse 15. Get back here. What shall we say, what then, shall we sin because we are not under the law but under grace? Certainly not. Verse 16, do you not know that whom you present yourselves slaves to obey? There's that word that the Protestants don't like either. Obey, you are the one slaves whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death of or obedience leading to righteousness. And we had an article in Tomorrow's World magazine, January, February 2003. Must we obey God to be saved? And it's just, can I use the word crazy? That if you obey God, that is equated to works. That's a satanic argument. No, you can't, you can't disobey God and still be under grace. So, after a Christian, of course, accepts God's grace, does he require anything more? Uh, God tells us to repent and be baptized, but is that salvation by works? Of course not. Is obedience at odds with grace? What does the Bible really teach about obedience uh, to Jesus Christ? There's one other dimension or perspective I want to give on this. It's from the Anchor Bible Dictionary, Volume 1, page 263, on the subject of antinomianism, anti-against-nomos law. There are those who are teach against, have the Protestant heresy of grace, are antinomians. They are against the law. This is what the uh, Anchor Bible Dictionary says. Scripture's own history tells us of the struggle to maintain balance between law and grace, 
between an appreciation of God's merciful and unconditional response toward God's people on the one hand, and they're obliged in obedient response to God's law on the other. Believers who emphasize the unconditional promise that God makes when covenanting with his people, but then downplay what God expects of his people, tend toward anti-nomistic faith. The opposite emphasis leads to uh, legalistic faith. One other quote from it, uh, the Anchor Bible Dictionary under antinomianism. The moral calculus, which carefully, clearly subordinates ethical concerns to theological convictions, led some of his converts to lawlessness, that is Paul's converts to lawlessness, 1 Corinthians, and his opponents to accuse him, accuse him of a disregard for ethical conduct, Romans 3, verses 1 through 8. In respect, Paul clarified that God's grace brings liberty from sin, not liberty to sin. Romans 6, 1, first through 11, which we've read. Let's repeat that. Paul clarified that God's grace brings liberty from sin, not liberty to sin. Then one other quote from the uh, Anchor Bible Dictionary. Thus, these self-correcting canonical conversations call the church from the margins of the gospel to its center, where both God's grace and God's demand are found. And, of course, meaning God's demand are found, it means obedience to the scriptures and obedience to God's law. What was the Apostle Paul's attitude towards the law? I hope you have those marked in your Bible. Turn over the page to... Uh, Romans, the seventh chapter, Romans 12, 7, and uh, verse 12. Romans 7, verse 12. Therefore, the law is holy, and the commandment holy, and just, and good. Verse 14. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. So we see the, the basic conflict between the uh, Protestant heresy and its misinterpretation of grace and understanding what God's true understanding it is. And even the Apostle Paul said here in uh, Romans 7 and uh, verse 25, Romans 7 verse 25, I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord, so then with the mind I myself serve the law of God but with the law of the, but the, but with the flesh, the law of sin. And then verse one of chapter eight, again, a wonderful, beautiful uh, memorization verse, comforting verse. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus is made me free from the law of sin and death. So what does God's grace mean to you personally? If I, I, I asked my wife that question one time. She said, well, God's grace, we are saved by grace. Oh, well, well, where is that? Well, we'll see that in the scripture here a little later. But what does it mean to you? 
To me, it means that I've been reconciled to God by the shed blood of Jesus Christ, who gave himself for me. The grace of God means that I'm free from the law of sin and death. To me, God's grace means that I have awesome freedom from guilt and slavery itself, freedom from sin, Satan, and society. That doesn't mean that we need, we do not have to keep resisting the devil, as it tells us in James, the fourth chapter, we must do. But grace to me means that I have freedom to recapture true values in all aspects of life. And grace means to me, John 10.10, I have come that you might have life and have it more abundantly, said Jesus. That abundant life means that we can climb mountains, we can express individual creativity in art, literature, industry, business, and science. Our living youth are creative too, and some have qualified with the Red Cross lifesavers. Uh, some have first aid certifications. So God has given us wonderful opportunities with His living grace. So he gives an opportunity to even climb mountains. I mentioned that. My wife and I have climbed uh, Mount Sinai. Uh, Dr. Meredith and others have claimed, climbed Mount Sinai. And uh, Dr. Meredith also climbed Mount Whitney in California. Uh, Mr. Wayne Pyle uh, climbed dozens, if not hundreds, of mountains in California and the West Coast. So God has created wonderful waterfalls and and beauty in the earth that we can enjoy. Which ones have you enjoyed? My wife and I have enjoyed Niagara Falls, uh, Bridal Vale Falls in uh, Yosemite, as well as Yosemite Falls itself. Uh, there's Amicola, Amicola Falls in Georgia, which my wife and I enjoyed with uh, Mr. and Mrs. Uh, Bob Howington some years ago. Uh, Mr. Whitaker uh, down in Wallaboro mentioned that he'd been to... Uh, Victoria Falls in Africa. So how valuable is God's grace? It gives you the privilege to enjoy life. You have the abundant life. It's priceless. As I said, grace gives us the freedom to recapture true values in all aspects of life. As Jesus said in John 8, verse 32, you shall know the truth, then the truth shall make you free. What an awesome Abundant life, we are privileged to live under the grace of God. But what is grace? The Dictionary of Paul and his letters, page 372, quote, In Pauline usage, the word charis, the Greek word for grace is charis, C-H-A-R-I-S, carries the basic sense of favor. And when God or Christ is its subject, acting in grace toward humankind is undeserved favor. So some of God's people have had a problem with the word grace. And I hope today that you'll expand your horizons and really understand the beauty and the abundance of life that God does give us through his grace. The false doctrine says all you have to do is just accept Jesus 
in your heart. Now, that's a false doctrine. What is grace? The Holman Bible Dictionary says, undeserved acceptance and love received from another, especially the characteristic attitude of God in providing salvation for sinners. For Christians, the word grace is virtually synonymous with the gospel of God's gift of unmerited salvation in Christ Jesus. Turn to uh, 2 Corinthians, uh, the ninth chapter. 2 Corinthians 9. In fact, uh, the Holman Bible Dictionary actually quotes this. 2 Corinthians 9 and verse 14. This gives the emphasis on the definition of grace. 2 Corinthians 9 and verse 14. And by, and by their prayer for you, the context of uh, praying for uh, the Corinthians, and by their prayer for you, who long for you, because of their exceeding grace of God in you, thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Of course, that indescribable gift is the very sacrifice of Christ and his shed blood. And that gift, he says, exceeding grace in you. And then not only is God's grace in us, but we stand for grace. You don't need to turn there, I'll just read it to you. Romans 5 and verse 1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we also have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. So we have the grace of God in us, and we stand in grace. That's completely the Holman Bible Dictionary. From the human perspective, the divine grace is a power which undergirds the present life. God's grace abides in us, as we just read, 2 Corinthians 9.14, And we stand in it, as we just read in Romans 5, verse 2. Our calling, our witness, our works are all based on the power of God's grace in our lives. 2 Thessalonians 1, verses 11 through 12. Paul sharply rejected any antinomian perversion of the gospel, which failed to recognize the true experience of God's grace changes one's life in the direction of righteousness. Grace never gives freedom to sin. So even the Bible dictionaries recognize, uh, in contradiction to the false Protestant idea of grace, grace never gives freedom to sin. Again, as I said, some members have an aversion to the words grace. They associate it with Protestant sentimentality. But think of God's personal love toward you. And think of God's favor and forgiveness which you and I desperately need. The importance of grace is reflected by the number of references in the Bible. Grace appears in the Bible 148 times in 137 verses. That's in the New King James Version. And the word gracious occurs 32 times in 31 verses in the New King James Version. Let's turn to Exodus 34 and verse 6. Exodus 34 
and verse 6. God wants us to be like Him. And one of the characteristics He shows us here about Him is described in Exodus 34 and verse 6. And the Lord passed before Him and proclaimed, The Eternal, the Eternal God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering abounding in goodness and in truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children, the children's children of the third and fourth generation. So it is God is merciful and he is gracious. Turn to Luke, the fourth chapter. Luke 4. And here we realize that, yes, not only is God gracious, but His physical Son, Jesus, was also gracious at 12 years old. Luke, the fourth chapter, Luke 4, and uh, verse 20, verse Luke 4, well, verse 20. Well, this is actually, I'll go back to the one later on where he's uh, 12 years old. This is when he was speaking uh, in Nazareth and opened the book in Isaiah. And he calls the book, verse 20, Luke 4, verse 20, and gave it back to the attendant and sat down and the eyes of all who were in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, this today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. So all bore witness to him and marveled at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. And they said, is this not Joseph's son? Yes, they realized that he had gracious words. How gracious are your words? How gracious are my words? We've all experienced gracious hosts and hostesses uh, from time to time. We've been guests in someone's home. And have you ever made the comment that uh, he or she was gracious? I think of my friend Bob Howington. He was a deacon in Brazelton who died February 3rd, 2012. He was truly a southern gentleman. For those of you, some of you know Mr. Bob Howington. Uh, he was very thoughtful. He was very gracious. Uh, I, I think of him as an example and a model. How, how can I be as gracious as Bob Howington was. He was one day older than I was. He was born one day before I was, so I always called him my senior because he was one day older than I was. But what is grace? A grace is God's favor and love towards us. It's undeserved favor. It's unmerited forgiveness and pardon. Grace never gives freedom to sin. Our calling, our witness, our works are all based on the power of God's grace in our lives. God is gracious, and he expects us to be gracious. That means that we're always being kind and thoughtful and respectful, humble and courteous. It tells in Colossians 4 and verse 5, Let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt that you may know how you ought to answer each one. How many words do you speak, write, or text each day? Are they seasoned with salt? 
So what is grace? God's grace is His favor and His love towards us. I see we're getting a, a little late, and we did start six minutes late. Six minutes late, so uh, just to let you know, I, I may go a little late today. God's grace was very important to the original first-century church, and uh, if you, I, I would give you one assignment that whenever you, those of you who do write. Write in your Bible, mark in your Bible, that whenever you come across the word grace in your Bible, give it a highlighter. And you realize the Apostle Paul, in all except the book of Hebrews, started his epistles with grace and peace be unto you from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. And often he would conclude his epistle with the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. So, Make sure that you are embracing uh, the grace of God our Father and the grace of Jesus Christ. I see a time is uh, I'm going to have to move ahead to another section of my sermon since uh, I have about uh, too much. Well, I'll just mention this part, of course, that you know, in Ephesians 2.8, uh, tells us, By grace are you saved through faith, and not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus under good works, which God has forth before ordained that we should walk in them. And so the Protestants take this particular verse, By grace are you saved through faith. But they omit the faith that's also required for salvation. And we know, we realize that it's by the faith of Christ that we're saved. Galatians 2 and verse 20. And we know that, that salvation is past, present, and future. We actually have, uh, Mr. Rod McNair's sermon, uh, number 862, Are You Saved? I went ahead on our LCG website and I searched, Are You Saved? and, uh, came up with Mr. Rod McNair's sermon on Are You Saved, showing again that salvation is past, present, and future. You have been saved from your past sins by the blood of Christ. And it tells us, I won't turn there for time, but 1 Corinthians 2 and verse 15, For we are to God the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved. Okay. We started at 2.30. So what time is it now? It's 4.05, right? Okay. Half an hour is not enough time. <laughs> Thank you, Mr. McNair. <clears throat> anyway, uh, salvation is past, present, and future. As I was reading, 1 Corinthians 2.15, For we are to God the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved. A present progressive tense. We are being saved and among those who are perishing. And then, of course, salvation is future. Romans 5.10. If when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the grace, by the sacrifice of Christ or the blood of Christ, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. 
That's Romans 5 and verse 10. And you know Matthew 24, verse 13. He that endures to the end, the same shall be saved. So it's past, present, and future. I, when I said I, I uh, searched on our website for Are You Saved, I came up with one of my old telecasts, Have You Been Saved? Uh, Tomorrow's World Telecast, uh, 2004, 16 years ago. And I was just shocked at the young man I saw there on the screen. Uh, in the remainder of the sermon, I want to try to squeeze in uh, eight positive elements of God's grace. Turn to 2 Corinthians 12, verse 7. 2 Corinthians 12, and verse 7. 2 Corinthians 12, and verse 7. Number one, God's grace allows us to endure trials. 2 Corinthians 12, and verse 7. Unless I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelation, a thorn of flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I be exalted among measure. Concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, Paul says, Most gladly I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. In the end of verse 10, for when I am weak, then I am strong. So number one, God's grace allows us to endure trials. Number two, God's grace abides in us. I already read that, but since we're in uh, 2 Corinthians 9, verse 14, And by their power for you, who long for you because of the exceeding grace of God in you. Number two, God's grace abides in us. Number three, God's grace reigns through righteousness. That's Romans 6. You'll turn back to Romans 6. I I think we already read that too in passing. Uh, Romans 6 and verse 17. For if by one man's offense death reigned through the one, much more those who received abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. Then Romans 6, uh, verses 20 and 21. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. What fruit did you have then in the things for which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. So again, grace will reign through righteousness. Now that's chapter 6 and uh, verse 21. No, that's the wrong, wrong reference here. We had that before. We'll find that. <coughs> okay. All right, let's all go on. Psalm 119 and verse 172, of course, tells us all thy righteousness is, is 
All your commandments are righteous. So grace reigns through righteousness. Number four, uh, God gives you the ability to impart grace to others. Turn to Ephesians 4, verse 29. Ephesians 4, and verse 29. Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but as what is good for necessary edification, that it may impart grace to the hearers. So God gives you the ability to impart grace to others. And that's through our language, through our communication. Colossians 4 and verse 5. Of course, there's a whole sermon on language and speaking the truth in love, as we've given before. Colossians 4 and verse 5. Walk in wisdom toward those who are outside, redeeming the time. Let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer each one. Number four, God gives us the ability to impart grace to others. Number five, God's grace is freely available. We already quoted Hebrews 4, verses through 14 through 16. So, well, actually, we did the, the last part of it. I'll read that. Hebrews 4, verse 14. Seeing then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was at all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly before the throne of grace. So you have that reinforcement. You have that authority to come boldly before the throne of grace because you have a great high priest, Jesus, the Son of God, at God's right hand. So God's grace is freely available. Pray for it. And come boldly before God's throne. Number five. Number six. Ask for grace and favor in the sight of others. I won't turn to these scriptures. I'll just read to them. But Noah found grace. Genesis 6 and verse 8. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. So you had billions of human beings, all wicked and violent and perverse, and God destroyed them from the face of the earth. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Again, I won't turn there, but just read Proverbs 16, verse 7. When a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. So ask for grace and favor in the sight of others. I remember the story of Mr. Herbert Armstrong, and it's, Written in the autobiography, chapter 2, I mean, volume 2, chapter 45, when Mr. Armstrong was going on various radio stations in Oregon, and he wrote, he wrote this from his autobiography. 
Christ's commission is to go into all the world with this message. To go to the world with the gospel necessitates dealing with the world and with some of the business organizations. Therefore, God's servant ought to seek not only divine guidance in such dealing, but also, since God is able to make even our enemies at peace with us, to ask for favor with such people as we must deal. To ask for favor with such people as we must deal. In all my years of experience, God has never failed to grant this request. But this time, in one occasion, he writes in his autobiography, in my eagerness, I had gotten ahead of God. I had gone on my own without asking for either guidance or favor or grace. And right here, perhaps I may give the reader an example of what God's word means by the admonition, pray without ceasing, or as Jesus said, to pray always. He means he must continually be in a spirit of prayer. He means to pray constantly, even over little things that arise. So he talks about getting grace and favor from station radio managers and operation managers, always asking for grace and favor. And he writes uh, now, again in volume two of his autobiography, I am now actively holding campaigns in world capitals, speaking before professional groups, even with heads of state worldwide. I am explaining why there is no peace, what is the way to peace, why humanity cannot solve its problems, why Christ's coming world government is the world's only hope, and what is our very purpose for being. And I am being given grace and favor in their eyes. So number six, ask for grace and favor, and pray that you can be courteous, respectful, and gracious. Number seven, we should strive to serve with grace, not serve with vanity or selfishness. Turn to Hebrews, the 12th chapter. Hebrews, the 12th chapter. How do you serve? You serve with humility, without going concern. Hebrews 12 and verse 28. Hebrews 12 and verse 28. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. And then just ahead a few verses, chapter 13 and verse 9. Do not be carried about with various and strange doctrines, for it is good that the heart be established by grace, not with foods which have not profited those who have been occupied by them. So again, I'd encourage you to, whenever you're reading through your Bible and you find the word grace, uh, to highlight it. But God said, let us have grace by which we may serve God effectively. Hebrews 13, verse 25. The Apostle Paul ends the epistle, Grace 
be with you all. Amen. So number seven, uh, pray for we should serve with grace. Number eight, we must grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ. I won't turn there, but Second Peter 3, verse 18. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Well, what helps us to grow? Having our heart in God's work. And, of course, we have the Living Church News articles on the mission of God's work. That we have our heart in God's work. And that's how we can grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ. We need to pray for more open doors. And uh, to watch the Tomorrow's World telecast, I was... I was criticized by a, a member of the church for encouraging people to watch the telecast. And this uh, person said, oh, well, that, that's for the people in the world. Well, yes, we are preaching to the people in the world, but our brethren need to know how Christ is working through his church to reach the people in the world. And you want to know, we are supporting the work. You have your heart in the work. You're praying for the telecast to reach more people. You're praying for the magazines to reach new people and to, to witness, warn, and welcome those who come into God's church. So pray for more open doors to the gospel. We grow in the grace and the knowledge of Christ when we have our heart in God's work. God's grace gives us the freedom to develop and mature. We make mistakes. But we learn from our mistakes, and we become more effective servants of Christ. So I've just given you eight positive elements of God's glorious grace. God's grace allows us to endure trials. Our words and conduct must extend God's grace to others through us. We must come boldly before the throne of grace. We need to ask for grace and favor in the sight of others for the furtherance of the gospel. I have a little more time here that I would want to share with you a, a paper on grace. Back in 1980, I was teaching a Fundamentals of Theology class in Ambassador College in Pasadena. And uh, my wife was in that class. And she wrote a paper on grace, and uh, it's dated here, March 13th, 1980. It's a good summary. It's seven pages long, but I'll just read their concluding paragraphs uh, from the article. After we have come under the grace of God, Catherine Ames writes, having received unmerited pardon for our past sins, we are now free to walk in newness of life, in the way that is right. That right way expresses the very love of God in keeping his commandments, 1 John 5, verse 3. Yet being human, with the pull of a carnal nature, we sometimes stumble in sin, 1 John 1, verse 8. At these times, we can be especially thankful that the grace of God is still available to us if we do our part. Psalm 111 verse 4 tells us that the Lord is gracious and full of compassion. In Hebrews 4.16, we are admonished, let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace 
that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We all have times of need. We can be assured God will grant us grace if we humble ourselves before him, John 4, uh, James 4, and verse 6. Having tasted that the Lord is gracious, 1 Peter 2, verse 3, we should continue to grow in understanding the truth of God's word, that we may live by it, 1 Peter 2, 21, Matthew 4, 4. When we experience weakness in the flesh that we cannot overcome, we should remember that Christ told the Apostle Paul, 2 Corinthians 12.9, My grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Throughout our lives, we must not forget that Jesus Christ himself and God, even our Father, have loved us and have given us everlasting consolation and good hope through grace. 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 16. We must strive to be sure we, quote, receive not the grace of God in vain, end of quote, 2 Corinthians 6, verse 1. And to the end, we must remember and accept the admonition given in 2 Peter 3, verse 18. But grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be glory both now and forever. Amen. Uh, uh, she did a great job in that, that article. So we have our struggles with trials and challenges. We have the challenge to overcome human nature. But we know and we know that we know that we are under God's grace and under his favor and love. Uh, the world follows a false grace, a grace that says the Ten Commandments are done away with. A chief grace, a cheap grace that doesn't require repentance. God's grace gives us the power to overcome. Uh, some critics say we shouldn't be preaching about Christ and grace. They are not a part of the gospel. But let me ask that person, are you striving to live by every word of God? And are you under grace? Are you trembling before the word of God, as it tells us in Isaiah 66 and verse 2? The critics are going to be judged by their own words. But we have to strive to live by every word of God, as it tells us in Matthew 4.4 and Luke 4.4. And we strive to fulfill the great commission. And we preach the way of the kingdom. And that way is John 14.6. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So we preach the elements of the kingdom, including the king of that kingdom. So brethren, we must grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ. We must extend God's grace to others. And as we prepare for the Passover in just two months, I encourage you to meditate on the sacrifice of Christ that made God's grace available to us. So thank God for the freedom His grace gives us to live life abundantly. So let's boldly come before the throne of grace 
come boldly that we may obtain mercy and grace in time of need. Because we have a great, loving, high priest and Savior and the Savior of the world at God's right hand. So let's finish the work that God has given us to do. Be gracious, radiate love, joy, and peace in the very nature of Christ himself. And remember, the last verse in the Bible. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen.